in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where, there, where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, if indeed God is one. And he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Tremendous, isn't it? You could almost sit down and say amen, couldn't you? But let me just remind you as we look at this matter of the law that the book of Romans was written mainly for Gentiles, for non-Jews. There were obviously some Jews in the church at Rome, but the vast majority were not. And yet you find in this tremendous epistle of Paul to the Romans that nevertheless he goes to great lengths to explain all about the law in order that those who are not Jews naturally in the flesh but have become Jews by faith in Jesus Christ, the real Jews. I once travelled in a, well, travelling in my car and I gave a lift to two students from Manchester University who proved to be Jewish and we got talking and I said, you know, I'm a much better Jew than you are. <laughs> and that really got them talking. <laughs> And so I began to just really use the argument that Paul uses here. And they had to agree that they didn't keep the law, they didn't hardly even bother about it, and uh, therefore their circumcision was meaningless. Now, nevertheless, the law and the background out of which the Christian religion came is out of the background of God's dealing with the Jews. We must always remember that. And there's a deep, of of, a deep debt of gratitude <laughs> which we will always owe to Abraham and to his faithful seed after the flesh. We must always remember that. But uh, nevertheless, even as Christians, we've got to understand about these principles because they apply to all of us. Secondly, and you could ask, well, why was this written to a church? Well, I think the reason it was written was because there were some Jews who were trusting in their Jewish background rather than in this way, which is simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And I think the second reason was that Christians are always in danger of falling into the same trap which the Jewish nation fell into. That is, if you're born of a Christian background and you look to your heritage and to your knowledge about God and about the things of God, it's so easy to end up exactly where the Jews ended up. Knowing the law and yet not keeping it. Knowing about the living God and yet not really knowing him at all. 
And so much which is here in a Jewish context in our day and generation applies very much to a Christian state, that we can have been brought up and we can have been trained in certain things which we've been taught about God. We can even tell the stories of the Bible. Uh, we know them off by heart. And yet none of it has become reality in our lives. Because the argument of chapter 2 is basically that the person whom God approves is someone who lives righteously. That's really what it says. And someone who doesn't live righteously is not approved by God. If he's a Jew, then he's condemned by the law because he hasn't kept it. If he's not a Jew, he's condemned by his conscience because he hasn't obeyed that. So either way, you've had it. <laughs> and therefore, all are concluded in sin. If we were just, because we are told here in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2, that all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And the reason is because they've not obeyed what they knew to be right. They haven't obeyed their conscience. So this answers the question, why will God punish those who live in darkest Africa and have never had a chance to believe the gospel? And the answer is because they haven't even obeyed the light they've had. And I'm convinced that as we've read in Romans 3 and uh, verse, where is it? God, let God be true and every man a liar. Somewhere here, I've lost it now. Why shall not the God of all the earth do right? The answer is, of course he will. Of course he will. Thank you. No, that's not it. Anyway, don't worry about it. We won't get off into that sidetrack. Okay. Yeah, leave it, okay? Let's keep on the track. So we'll end up chasing the Bible for a verse that isn't really very relevant. The point that I'm making here is that by conscience, man without Christ knows enough to start moving in the right direction. And if he disobeys that which he knows, then there's no reason at all why he should have further light in order to disobey more fully. <laughs> in fact, as you get more light, the Bible teaches us, greater is our condemnation if we don't obey it. So to preach the gospel to people actually is either bringing them to life or to a deeper death. There's a, there's a danger in it almost. If the response is positive, well, praise God. If the response is negative, we're, we're pushing them deeper into their rebellion. You find this, I think, very clearly in the Gospel of John when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, that really put an end to all arguments, didn't it? <laughs> when a man just says, Lazarus, come forth after four days, when his body's rotting away and Lazarus comes forth, they either had to do one of two things, which they did. One was to believe, and it says others from that moment forward plotted how they might kill him. Because, you see, this was exposing their rebellion. They didn't want to believe. And they were looking through their Bibles for reasons not to believe, for ways to wriggle round what was obviously being presented to them. And so the preaching of truth has a dividing effect. It brings some to life and it brings others to death, which again is what we read in the scripture. And the Jews, well, for them, it was just more specific. Now, when God gave the law to the Jews, he knew perfectly well that no one was ever going to keep it. Um, I think, again, it's in Deuteronomy. Let's just make sure, see if I can find it. Deuteronomy 6, and verse 25, I think it is. If I've got it right. 
Yes. Well, let's read from verse 24. Deuteronomy 6. This is a sort of summary of what the law and the commandments was all about. So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always and for our survival as it is today. Why are we to fear God? Why are we to fear God? For our good always and for our survival as it is to this day. And it will be our righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as he commanded us. So here, there is at least a theoretical possibility of being righteous before God according to all the laws and the commandments that God gave. But there's only one condition, you must keep it all, all the time. It's like going into an exam and they say, well, you'll get a pass mark providing everything you put down is 100% right. The only pass mark in this exam is 100%. Anything less than that, finish. Who would like to go in for an exam like that? <laughs> well, you theoretically could get the qualification, but uh, there's not much likelihood of it, is there? And so, presented to the Jews was this possibility of being righteous before God, providing they kept all the commandments of the Lord our God, just as he commanded them. But in practice, as we've just read in Romans, no one actually achieved it in practice. And God knew that. He knew that they were never going to keep the law. So we want to ask ourselves the question and answer it tonight, why then did God give the law? Why give the law? Knowing perfectly well that it was going to be impossible for anybody to keep it. Why offer, if you like, a righteousness to which no one could ever attain? Because God wanted to teach us by this the absolute folly of ever trying to please God by setting before ourselves a law and then trying to keep it. Now I know that uh, all but one of us here is not a Jew, or was not a Jew. Not naturally, that is. But nevertheless, we end up basically in living according to some law or other. Some law. If we were born in a Christian country, and, uh, which doesn't exist, but you know what I mean by that. If, if we live in a society which has generally accepted some Christian principles, then we set these up as the way we ought to behave. Or if we were brought up in a Christian family where we had a much better understanding of these things, then the standard's that much higher. And it's so easy for us to break down Christianity into a set of rules and then it's no better to us than Judaism. It just becomes a standard which we know we ought to live up to, but in practice we don't. And this, you know, we express it in our sort of society by having New Year resolutions. And on, July the f um, on January the 1st we write down... I'm going to try and be better than I was last year. That's basically what we're saying, and this means I'm not going to get so angry with the kids, I'm not going to uh, be kinder to the wife or to my husband, I'm not, whatever it is, I'm going to get up a bit earlier, I'm going to really dig the garden and uh, not just think about it, or whatever it is that's our particular problem. And we make all these resolutions and for sort of maybe two days or three days, best part of a week we try, and it isn't long before we've broken them. How many of us have done that? 
And yet many of us, we respond to the sort of ministry we've had from Zach. We said, right, right, no more grumbling. <laughs> you know, and have you managed it? Just gone one day since we were told not to grumble anymore. And we've all resolved, did we resolve not to grumble? How many have broken it? Don't tell me. <laughs> How many have broken it? You see, we so easily respond after the law. We say, that's right. You see, the, we're told in Scripture that the law is holy and good. It tells us that in Romans 7. Nothing wrong with the law. What the problem is, is with us. And the main reason for giving the law was that we should discover ourselves, not that we should keep the law. Because it's incredible how blind people are and how unaware they are of how incapable they are of living up to any standard. It's really amazing. I mean, you must have gone out and talked to people out across and say, well, I don't do anybody any harm. And they're quite sure it's true, but in fact, I don't think that's true of anybody. They say, I, I, don't try, I don't try and hurt anybody. I mean, I've had Hindus say this to me, I've had Christians say it, I've had Muslims say it to me. You see, when you get into religion, it doesn't really much matter what the label is. In that sense, they're all the same. Useless. <laughs> all of them. Because no one lives up to them. I've asked this. I've said to really devout Muslims, well, do you keep the rules of your religion? And they have to say no. And I've said it to Hindus and to Christians, no. We can't keep it. But, well, surely if we try hard, God will understand that we're just human and you know, we do our best, and after all, I mean, we can't do any better than try, can we? And the answer is, yes, you can. Providing you don't live, or seek to live, according to law. And that was the whole purpose. God picked out of the world a particular people, the children of Abraham. And he said, now to these, I'm going to give a, a series of laws, and it's going to be a sort of demonstration to the whole world of the futility of law. Now, before the law came, men knew in their hearts what were the right and wrong things to do. They knew. It wasn't when the law suddenly came that they suddenly knew that it was wrong to do so-and-so and right to do so-and-so. They knew it before. But what the law did was to codify some of the main principles of right living and to codify some of the main wrongs of wrong living. If I can use an illustration here, so perhaps I'll give you... The first heading, I've got five headings of why the law was giving, and number one is to give a knowledge of sin. It says that in Romans 3.20, if you'd like to turn back to Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 is the first of the five reasons for the law, and, for, and, and you'll soon see how it really does affect everybody. The Jews were just a sort of a spectacle, if you like, for the whole world to learn from. Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No one's going to pass the exam, says God. It'll be your righteousness if you do all the commandments of God just as he told you to do them, but you won't. No flesh shall be justified in his sight by the works of the law, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Now, quite a few years ago, when I got my first motorbike in 19, I'll tell you when it was, 1951. And uh, in those days, there were no such things as white lines on the roads. No cat's eyes, it was just a road. 
and there wasn't that much traffic either. And uh, it, there was a, a highway code, but it was just a guidebook of suggestions. Very, very little of it was, was, was legal. <laughs> and uh, you were left largely to do the decent thing, because after all, we're British. <laughs> and that's the way it was. It was a sort of gentleman's sort of agreement that uh, you weren't a cad and did the wrong things in the wrong places. But there was very little that was codified in the way of motoring laws in those days. There were no white lines, and so it was just left to your discretion to decide, for example, when it was safe to overtake and not to overtake. In the highway code, it said, don't overtake on a bend. But you weren't legally guilty if you did. Your conscience might say, that's stupid. But there was no law which said, but said you've broken the law, now you're guilty of a fine not exceeding £100. There was no, it, was, it wasn't codified, you understand? And then one day, as the behaviour on the roads got worse and the vehicles got more numerous, a whole lot of things which were previously according to conscience, where if you were a decent driver, you prided yourself that you did these things. These things were now systematised into a whole mass of laws and rules and regulations. And one of the things that happened was white lines were drawn. Solid white lines, it was an offence to cross. Short dotted lines, you were free, providing the road was safe, to cross. Long sort of... Uh, dotted lines, these were hazard areas where you had to be particularly careful. Now, if you crossed a solid white line, now you were guilty before the law. Previously, if you did it, if you crossed in the same area before the white line came, you were just a fool. <laughs> Somebody may have told you. But you weren't legally guilty. There was no law which said, you've broken the law, now there's a penalty. It wasn't that specific, do you understand? Now, it wasn't that the driving behaviour changed. What these white lines did was to throw up into sh sheer uh, sharp relief the errors of our conduct which were already there. And a lot of people found themselves in court. They were now criminals. Previously, they got away with it. So the law seemed to bring in a new uh, sort of generation of criminals. Most, many, many people have been to court for a motoring offence, you see. Whereas in, in my young days, it was almost unknown. Unless you were an idiot and tore through a high street at sort of 80, 90 miles. There were no speed limits apart from, you know, just inside definite built-up areas. Once you're on the open road, you go as fast as you like. Mind you, there was a little record that played nearer my God to thee. <laughs> Once you got above 80. <laughs> but I think this illustrates why the law came. Do you see the point I'm making? You see, God had given us a conscience and when the conscience is working correctly, we knew already what was required of us. But we find that through deliberate disobedience, people are in a state of varying degrees of seared conscience. Now that's different to a clear conscience, alright? I believe, just as a side issue, I believe there are three states of conscience. There is a seared conscience. There is an awakened conscience. And then there is a clear conscience. Right? And the Bible speaks of all three. A seared conscience is someone who can do evil and not even be aware of it. Now that's the most dangerous state of all to be in. 
It's like someone, you know, who's so drunk that they drive all over the world and don't even care. You know, there's, a, there's an awful state. Now, some people can be like that. Then when you first come to Christ, you get an awakened conscience. That is, you, God starts to give you a sensitivity in your conscience and you start to know, perhaps not too clearly, but you begin to see, you begin to discern, as it says in Hebrews 5, you begin to discern between good and evil through exercise. It's like sort of, um, uh, how shall I put it, you know, you know, you know, like a, an, um, say an old bell or something, or an instrument, it gets all rusted up, and you start to sort of rotate it, and then gradually it gets freer and freer and freer, until finally, imagine sort of a compass that you find in an old drawer, that has got all rusty, and you take it all apart and clean it up, and then you start to work it around, and then, and then you oil it, and then it starts to swing perfectly. Now, it's rusted up, so it doesn't move at all. Then as you start to sort of, it goes, ee, 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 and you start to sort of loosen it up, until finally it's swinging freely. Until we come to a place where our conscience is sensitive, and then we come to a place, which Paul speaks of in a number of places, where he, he says that one of the goals of his instruction, for example, in 1 Timothy uh, 1.5, is a clear conscience. And he says, tells us again in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, he says, my conscience is clear before God. He's got an awakened conscience, which is clear. But we can have a seared conscience. So we come to a place where we don't even know we're doing wrong. Not quite no, because there's always a little squeak somewhere deep down, but we've so ignored it that it's hardly, hardly working. And so God brings the law. And he says, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, number one. Whereas we've lived, I lived for 28 years, I never worshipped God once. I ignored him. And then later on I decided the most convenient way of ignoring God was to say there is no God. So I became an atheist of convenience. I didn't want to know God. <laughs> and that's, I think, where, why most, most professing atheists are professing atheists, because it's, it's inconvenient. And you read, listen to these scientists today, they do everything except admit God. <laughs> they talk about, you know, you know, nature doing things. They give a personality to nature or to, sometimes to evolution, as if it's got a personality that thinks and reasons and can plan and design, and it's so stupid. What they're really saying is God, but they won't use the word. Because you always end up with admitting God. You have to, because God is. But the conscience, you see, gets all blocked up. And so God brought the law. And he says, right, now here are a set of laws. Cross over them, and you've broken the law. And here's the penalty for it. And so we now know where we are. He just took ten test places. Now what God is after is a whole life that's righteous. It's like sort of, you know, studying chemistry for three years in a university and then at the end of it you answer six questions or whatever it is. Now those six questions are just little tests here and there to see whether you know your subject. And they can come anywhere. So you have to know the whole subject. That's the idea. But what you usually do is you sort of hope you guess where it is. <laughs> and what we end up today is not with a desire to know the whole subject, but with a desire to pass the exam, which means we'd love to know what the six questions are so we can answer them. <laughs> now, in India, where I taught for a few years, it wasn't only hoped, it was deliberately planned that way. And the lecturers would drop broad hints and say, I think you should revise this. <laughs> and there was a collusion between, because the le lecturers half the time were not very conversant with their subject, and half the time didn't even come and lecture. 
So they hadn't covered the course, and the students didn't know the subject, so they just colluded between each other just to sort of get through an exam. But they produced chemists who didn't know any chemistry. They produced economists who didn't know anything about economy. We, I once remember interviewing with someone else at a, 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 a chat for a, a simple questions. I was embarrassed for this, asking them. This was a Bachelor of Commerce. And this chap with me asked him the question. He said, please convert so many thousand rupees to sterling. And this, this man's, young man said, please, sir, what is sterling? <laughs> and that's a Bachelor of Commerce. Because <laughs> you see, what's happened is we've gone away from this desire to know the subject to just wanting to pass an exam, to wanting to get six questions. What are the questions? What's the answer? I can get the qualification. Now, we've got this sort of attitude uh, to wanting approval with God. Where does God test me? Right, Ten Commandments, right. If I keep them, I'm all right. But God says, no, I want you to be like me. We heard it this morning. I want your whole being to be glorious. I don't want you just to pass the test in ten test places. But nevertheless, an exam system is quite useful in just testing out to see whether you are really conversant with the subject. And God took ten commandments. He said, I'll test you there, I'll test you there, I'll test you there, I'll test you there, I'll test you there. But what I'm really after is to see whether you're totally righteous. To see whether you're wholly like me in your being. And these are just, just a little test here, but, but everywhere I apply this test, if you're walking according to law, you're going to be found short. So the first reason the law was given was to give a knowledge of sin. It means everybody who's going along life's road, some time, sooner or later, crosses over the line. And that's literally what one of the three words for sin means. It means literally to transgress or to cross over the line. It's sometimes translated transgression. And it means that there's a line. This side, you're in the will of God or you're righteous. That side, you've gone over and you cross over. God says, that's it. It's the penalty. You know, when the traffic warden comes and says, your front wheel's on the yellow line. And you say, well, it's only just over. And she says, well, I'm sorry, love. She says, but it's on the railer line. So here's a ticket. Well, you can't argue. You've transgressed. There's a line drawn. You get one side. You're free. The other side, you've had it. That's the way the law works. It's quite impartial and it's inflexible. And that's one of its weaknesses. But it does discover sin. Okay. So God gave it for that reason. He took the Jewish nation who, who were particularly precious to him and always will be. We won't go into that. That's not our subject. And he said, right, now here's the, the law and it's going to be used to prepare a people who will be ready for Jesus when he comes. That was the idea behind it. Okay? Now the second reason the law was given we find in Romans 5 and verse 20. Verse 20, and the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's my second illustration, which I mentioned just a moment ago. That is, when the law came, it produced the law of white lines on roads and yellow lines for parking and all this. You see, we're always told not to park in foolish places. 
but it was a matter of opinion. It's a matter of conscience. Now the yellow line's drawn. One inch that side, a fine. One inch that side, no fine. See, that's the principle of law. It defines the sin. But what it produced was a whole crop of new criminals. <laughs> As it says here, the transgression increased. And so does the government's revenue. <laughs> okay? Now, it's not that the law's evil. It doesn't make criminals out of us. What it does is to sh throw up the criminality which was already there. But was previously, we were getting away with it. And it exposes this sinfulness of sin. Come to Romans 7 and verse 13. Well, let's read verse 12 also. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, it should have produced nice people, but it didn't. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Now this is the amazing thing. Go back to my white line illustration. And here am I, along a certain particular piece of road, and it's a long, slow climb, with a, you know, a, a gradual bend on this road, and it's not a clear way ahead, but there's a big smelly old lorry sort of chugging up this hill like that, and all the black smoke and I'm sitting behind it thinking <coughs> you know and I'm thinking well can I go dare I go you know, and then I think well I'll have a go like that around I go you see now before the white line was there I was just a bit foolish but I wasn't guilty and then some <laughs> council employee <laughs> comes and puts a solid double white line all the way up this hill which says thou shalt not cross if you do you've broken the law and here am I going up this hill with this smelly old lorry belching black smoke and it's a you know, slow bend you can't really see very clear anyway there's the white line there saying thou shalt not cross <coughs> I look around you know look back look out no copper around right <laughs> You see, what I discover in me is that there is a, I mean, there's real sin because when I'm confronted with a thou shalt not that doesn't suit me, what do I do? I break the law. And so the law shows to me the sinfulness of sin. I don't find myself conforming. I'm looking for ways to get round it. Take income tax for a good example. And the multitude of men who make a fat living out of showing other people how they can wriggle around it. And then there's lots of other men thinking of new rules to bring in to stop them. There's people plugging up holes and others knocking them in. And it's a great, great industry, isn't it? Which keeps many, many, it's a multi-million pound industry. And we don't say, oh, this is a good law, we'll keep it. We say, is there any way around it? Anybody looking? Will I get caught? And what I discover is that there's, a, there's a, a sinfulness in me. It's not just the sins I do, but there's a, there's an in, that, uh, I will do it. As I've used this illustration once, I remember in, bed, in Bedmond, supposing I came in. Or let's take another illustration. You, you um, find a, a nice piece of grass in the middle of a town, which you've always, you know, uh, walked around because it's a nice piece of grass. 
then suddenly one day they put up a lot of notices. Keep off the grass. And you think, cool, why should I? <laughs> and you suddenly want to walk on it. Have you ever, <laughs> you ever, ever felt like that? Of course you have. That's right. Well, that's, that's another, the law shows us the sinfulness of sin. That when there's a thou shalt not, we say, why shouldn't I? Who's he to tell me what to do, what not to do? If ever there was an attitude abroad today, that's the attitude. And so the law has this purpose to bring forth the sinfulness of sin. And it's to show us the rebellion that's in our hearts. It's not even that we think the law's bad, it's just, it's there. <laughs> I think it was, it was St. Augustine who said in one of his writings that uh, he had lots of good pears in his own garden, but because the man next door put up a big notice, no one's to take these pears, he suddenly had a great desire to go and take them. <laughs> Which apparently he did. Before he was, before he was a saint, you'll understand. <laughs> and suddenly that fruit which was forbidden was more attractive and more delicious than that which he could have. When there was no, when there was no notice, he was quite happy to eat his own pears. But once it was forbidden, he wanted them. Okay? So the law shows us the sinfulness. That's, there's something in us. Again, there's another, there's three Greek words that are used for sin, and this, another one has this idea of having a bias. It's like, you ever, ever played bowls? You know with bowl, bowl, the, bowl, the wooden balls you roll on a, a beautiful piece of grass, and, and one side there's a weight to make the ball go in a curve. It's called a bias. So that however you throw that ball, it will not go straight. It will always go with a curve. You have various degrees of bias to make it rock, you know, turn varying amounts. Now that's the meaning behind this word. And the Bible says we have a bias towards sin. We've got to discover that, that in us there's something that will not go straight. And you can put all the laws you like and perhaps out of fear there may be a keeping on the trammels of law but the desire is always to break them. And the law shows that up. It shows up that I want to sin in my natural self until God deals with it. Okay? The fourth reason is a, a knowledge of our weakness. Go to Exodus 19.8 for a moment. A few references in Exodus. Boy. Exodus 19 and first of all verse 8. Well, let's read from verse 5. Just verse 5. This is God speaking to the nation of Israel after he's um, giving them the law, or about to give them the law. And he says to them, verse 5, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples from all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the son of Israel. God's telling Moses to say this to the people. And then Moses comes down the mountain and uh, he hasn't even told them what the law is yet. He's just said, well, if you'll keep these commandments, then this is what's going to happen. You're going to be God's treasure possession. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a royal nation. All the things which the church has now become in Christ. All right, which the Jews naturally never became. 
or at least it was taken from them, as Jesus said in Matthew 21, 48. But here, as after he's given these wonderful words in verse 8, the people, it says, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, Oh, the Lord's spoken to us, we will do. Yeah, all right, Lord, whatever you say, we'll do it. You know, there's, there's a sort of an arrogance here. Yeah, we can do it. Yeah, I, I can get to heaven by myself. I can live a life good enough to please God. And that's what a lot of people say. I haven't done anybody any harm. What are you going to do when you stand before God? Well, I should be all right. Have you, anybody ever talked to you like that? Anybody here like that? I hope not. Well, I hope you won't be by the time we've finished. <laughs> it's quite normal amongst nominal Christians, as it was amongst the Jews. They said, well, we've got Abraham to our father. Jesus said, he that commits sins is the slave of sin. We say, oh, I was born in a Christian country. People even say that today. I, th I said, what Christian country? Where is it? <laughs> My father was a bishop. <laughs> I've, had this, I've had all these things said to me. My father was a bishop. One man said to me, I've got Brahmin blood in my veins. I said, I'm afraid that's not good enough. <laughs> he was a bishop that said this to me. I said, you need royal blood in your veins. You know, people think they're good enough. Oh, the Lord said we will do it. Haven't even heard what it is yet. Amazing, isn't it? Go on. Exodus 24, 3. It really is quite incredible. Exodus 24, and verse 3. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken to us we will do. Yeah. Kid stuff. <laughs> Ten Commandments. Love the Lord our God. Don't commit. Oh, yeah, no trouble. No problem. They just did not know how weak they were. Come to Joshua. This is really fantastic. Now, you know what happened to the children of Israel, how they rebelled against God, and this and that and the other happened. You know the story reasonably well, don't you? Now, this is the children of that generation whom Joshua is about to lead into the Promised Land. Listen, Joshua 1. And verses 16, verse 16. <laughs> Joshua is about to lead him into the promised land. He says, now look, this, this is the way we're going to do it. And they say to him, all that you have commanded us, we will do. And wherever you send us, we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Isn't that incredible? <laughs> isn't it incredible? <laughs> but you know, honestly, beloved, the church isn't very different. <laughs> We listen to the word of God and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you believe that was the word of God? Yeah. Have you done it? Yeah. Are you sure? Well, <laughs> well, I don't know. Listen, listen to that. Just as we've obeyed Moses, so we'll do. And listen to verse 18. Just as well, you haven't got these people for your elders. Anyone who rebels against this, your command, and does not obey your words, in all that you command him, shall be put to death. <laughs> Kill them all if they don't obey. Go on, Moses. And they were just pronouncing a death sentence on themselves. I've got a note in my Bible. I, I've got here, I'm glad it's God who's judge. <laughs> I wrote it in my Bible when I was reading there. <laughs> Incredible, isn't it? Incredible, the arrogance.
confidence in man. And one, another reason for the law was for man to realise in his own strength he couldn't do it. It's easy to give up smoking until you try. If That's if you're a smoker. Lots of people ask, I, I, I'm sure I could give it up any time. I said, right, start today. <laughs> you see? You, you say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure. Beloved, we've got to discover how weak we are. That's one reason the law came. Mo, uh, uh, Paul found this. Go back, go back to Romans, into chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And this is his testimony. He says, and, and you can just imagine Paul, because he was a very zealous um, Jewish boy, and at the age of 12, they used to go through a ceremony of being made a bar mitzvah, which meant that they were married to the law. Up to the age of 12, they weren't expected to keep the law, so they could live without legally being guilty before the law. And I can just imagine little Paul going along with his dad to the synagogue and listening to the scriptures and hearing the singing and just being blessed like anything, because, you see, for him, he was just without conviction before God. And he could just live in the, in the enjoyment of the Jewish religion without being condemned by it. Can you understand that? He broke the law, but he wasn't guilty before the law. It wasn't expected of him. And then there came a day when he was coming up to this ceremony, the ceremony of the Bar Mitzvah, to be married to the law. That's, of course, what we read about Jesus at the age of 12 in the, in the temple, talking with the teachers of the law, because he was, at that point, going through the same ceremony, I would imagine. It says he was born under the law, and I guess he was married to the law at the age of 12, in order that he might redeem those who were cursed by the law. Okay, so here's little Paul going up to the synagogue. Now he's or going probably up to Jerusalem to, to be married to the law, to, to go through this tremendous ceremony of being made a bar mitzvah. And uh, I guess he was reading it all up and making sure he got all the rules and regulations right because I, if, if I understand Paul all right, if he was going to be a Jew, he was going to be a Jew 110%. If he was going to be a Pharisee, he was going to be Pharisee to the very tip of his, of his hair and the end of his fingernails. And so he, he applied himself with all diligence and he said, I'm going to be the best Jewish lawkeeper there ever was. I'm sure that was his heart. And he went up there and he listened. He said, right, now, now I'm going to... God, you've really got someone here who's going to keep the law. And he read it all up, studied it most studiously. And then, to his horror, he discovered he couldn't do it. Now, when Dad said, come into the synagogue, son, it was next Saturday, he didn't feel like it because he was condemned for the first time the law had come. It's really, this is what he's saying in Romans 7. If you read uh, verse 9. Or, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Do you understand that? So when he came to the synagogue... He didn't feel like singing the Psalms because he was condemned. And he thought, well, what am I going to do? He is the only way I know to righteousness and I can't do it. 
Can you imagine what he felt like? And they, well, before, when he wasn't under the law, he was free. He was alive. He could enjoy God. He could know him in a measure. He could enjoy the Psalms. He loved to go into the synagogue. And now, bang, the Lord killed him because he couldn't keep it. And it brought to him a tremendous knowledge of his weakness. With all that discipline and all that knowledge and all that zeal, he, the law ended up slaying him. So you can see how useless it is for you and me to keep the law. It may be the Christian law. It may be what we've decided are the things which make us acceptable to God. You know, you can easily... Most Christians live under law, beloved. That's why it's so relevant to us. Because we, if we're not very careful, we break down Christianity to a series of things. If I do those, God will accept me. And if I don't do them, I don't feel worthy anymore to live in the presence of God. And we, we end up with the law that we've made, not even Jewish law. But it's the law, possibly, that we were brought up with. It may be the law of the group in which we move. Or it may be the books we've read. Or it may be a mixture of all these things. And we're basically saying, if I can't keep these things, I'm not fit to enjoy God's presence. And we put ourselves under law. And what does it do? Same as it did to Paul. Kills us. And I can tell with people coming, you can tell people coming under law, because, you know, they come in with a sort of hangdog look. <laughs> So he's had a bad week. You know, she. Now, there may be deliberate sin, and that's a different matter. But even there, your only recourse is to go to God and say, Lord, forgive me, which he will. And then find grace to live differently. All right? So that's the fourth reason. It's to show our weakness. Number, was that number three? I'm sorry. Was that four? Three. Number four, it's to keep us from the excesses of sin. That's the fourth reason. This is in Galatians 5. Running out of time. Sorry about that. Let's go through it a bit quickly now. This is so important. I really don't want to rush it because it can transform your life when you get hold of it. Really hear me. Many, many people live under law. And if we can get free from it, to walk in the freedom of faith and grace, we just become totally different people. Now in Galatians chapter 3 then, verse 23 uh, well let's read from 21 now, is the law then contrary to the promise of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law, or come out of the law in other words, if the Jewish law couldn't bring the Jews to righteousness, no Christian law that you can think of is going to do it. Do you hear me? Do you understand? So if you're living according to a set of rules, the word says there is no law that can bring life. The best law there ever was was the one God gave and that didn't work. Don't think you can do any better than God because you can't. All right? That's what, we're, that's what we're reading here. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. In other words, we're left with only one alternative. That's Jesus. None of us can ever, ever attain to acceptance with God by any trying on our part. All right? Therefore, the law, verse 24, has become our... It's a very difficult word to translate. Our tutor, our schoolmaster, our trainer, 
our, it, the word is pedagogos, and it means it, it was a, um, a special servant that was employed in the house of a, you know, the better, the better off Greek families. And this pedagogos, his job was to take the children of the family and train them on behalf of the parents. They taught them, you know, all, it was like a governess would be the nearest thing in English, but it, it was more than that. They taught them how to speak, how to eat, how to dress their clothes, they taught them their hygiene, they, they took them to school, they helped them in their studies. Their, their job was to train these children up and to bring them up to, to be, uh, you know, in every way, well brought up children. That was their function. And they was, their, their job was to keep them from doing anything which was not pleasing to the parents. And so uh, here we have the law being like that. It's to keep us on the right lines. It's to keep us from the worst excesses of sin. That's why I always believe in bringing children up under law. You know, that's when they're not converted. We mustn't be afraid of bringing our children lovingly but firmly under definite government to keep them from just going off in their own folly into various kinds of sin. Although they may not be in Christ, it'll keep them all the time. I still remember, years after I left home and, and I was away from home, I could never do anything wrong on a Sunday. Couldn't even go to the pictures. It was just built in me since I was a little, little dot, you know, and it, until I was 14 when I rebelled and went off. That, that, that standard, that purity, that, that right living was built into me. Remember how it says in the scriptures, train a child in the way that he will go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And I remember saying to Eileen, when neither of us were Christians, I said, isn't it stupid? We just don't feel free to go to the pictures on Sunday. I said, it's just, the, just that, you know, the, the moulding of... And I was quite resentful, but I couldn't get free from it. And I couldn't go off into sin. I couldn't go no, very far wrong because the training I'd received kept me. Now the law had that effect upon the Jews because they, they were as a nation infinitely more right, righteous and clean and pure than the nations all around them. And you go to a Christian country even today uh, an, a country like England that's had a Christian influence perhaps would be a better way of putting it and you go to a raw heathen country, and even today there's a tremendous difference. When I went to Bombay, uh, for example, I was a shock to find in a bus queue that when there was a lame man with, with, a, with, a, with a crutch, that everybody took advantage of him. They just knocked him over to get on the bus, you see. Anybody who's at a disadvantage, take advantage of it. And I was horrified. I thought, well, this isn't, isn't right. But you see, this, this is the Christianity that's been built into us as a society. To care for the, you know, the aged and to, you know, to look after those. In, you know, it's, it's built into us. It's like a great machine. that the, the power's been taken off, but the flywheel's still carrying us along in a measure of Christian principle. You go to a raw heathen society and you'll realise what we still have of goodness and of truth and of integrity still built into our society, even today. Although it's running out fast. So that's another effect of the law. It keeps people from the worst excesses of sin. And that's why, even in a church like this, when we get new people coming in and they're not yet really married to Christ, I don't know, you know, I don't know quite where they are, but we would find it necessary sometimes to keep you on the law. Until 
God does that work in you where out of love and out of utter commitment to Christ you want to please him anyway. Then there's no need for the law anymore. Now when my children grow up and want the things of Christ and want to live righteously according to his rules, I don't need to apply any laws anymore. They're now free from the law. As it puts it in Romans 7 verse 4, we are freed from the law but there's a condition. When we're married to Christ. In other words, you've got one of two husbands in this life. It's either the law, and for the Jew it was the codified Jewish law, and for the Christian it's, it's Christianity applied in legal form. I don't mean heavily, or, or you know, don't misunderstand me when I say this, but the principles which are good and holy and righteous, we, we impose them, if you like, with loving firmness upon our children. I'm a great believer in it. We teach them not to tell lies, not to just indulge themselves, to get up at a reasonable time and you know, all the things which, which make for godly living. We, we bring them into these things. And that will have its reward later. If you've ministered to people who've never had a touch of Christ, I tell you, you've got a thousand times more difficult job. We found in India that even Hindus who went through a Christian school and had a Christian education are much more reachable than those who've never ever heard of Jesus. They've had years and years of darkness. They're much more difficult to reach. So the law has that purpose too. It has a, it has a restraining effect. And it kept the Jewish nation from the worst excesses of sin. And it will keep uh, Christians uh, similarly. All right? And then the fifth reason is that the law was a shadow and a type of the reality which was yet to come. Now you can divide the law into two halves. The moral law, which is, if you like, to deal with the righteous way we live, all the rules about what to do when, you know, moral purity and dealings in finance and all this myriad of rules and regulations which are excellent foundations for righteous living. All the moral law. You understand that? And Jesus came in Matthew 5 and he said, don't think I've come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfil it. Now, if you go on reading through Matthew 5, he's speaking here about the moral law, the moral side of the law. And he says now, it says in the law, if you get angry without a, uh, with a brother without a, um, you know, thou shalt not murder. But he says, I say unto you, if you get angry with a brother with, without a reason, you're in danger of hellfire. He's taking the law further. He's taking, if you like, the outward shell and giving us the inward spirit that that outward shell represents. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look after a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart already. Not just an outward a shell of purity, but an inward mind which is pure. And he goes through all these sort of moral things, one by one, about praying and about giving, and he takes the outward shell and gives you the inner motivation. And what's happening is that the old moral law of the Jews is being superseded by something far better, which goes beyond it. And in that sense, Jesus is saying, I haven't come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfil it. I'm going to take you now to a place where you're going to keep the law without even thinking about it. 
You're going to come into such a quality of life that you're going to keep all the law without even looking around to see if you're doing it. It's re- if I can go back to my, my uh, chemistry degree illustration, it's like someone who's got such a superb mind and gives themselves so diligently to the subject that they know all there is to know about chemistry. Now, such a person isn't going to be sweating, oh, I wonder what the questions are. He, he, whatever they are, he can answer them. <laughs> Do you understand? If there's a hundred questions, he'll answer them. He doesn't care whether there's six or fifty or a hundred. He knows the subject. And so he's relaxed. He, if you like, he passes the exam incidentally. <laughs> His mind's not on the exam, it's upon the subject. And when our minds are upon Christ and upon his beauty and his glory, and displeasing him and loving him and obeying him, we'll find ourselves fulfilling the law without even thinking about it. We've gone beyond the law. And in that sense, the law has become null and void, because it's been superseded. It's been fulfilled. And it says basically the same thing in Romans chapter 8. If we can just look at that. Romans chapter 8, and verse... uh, Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What he's saying here is that Jesus, living as a real man by a different principle which was to live by the Father, to be continually drinking the Spirit, he demonstrated another way of living which incidentally keeps the law. See, he lived righteously beyond the law and they couldn't catch him out on any point of law. But his eyes wasn't on the law, it was on Father. He was living in Father's world, in Father's life, drawing in the Spirit. Now this is the principle, it's like a scientific law. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, if you've studied science, you know the law of gravity. It operates... I mean, a scientific law has got three things about it. It operates anywhere, anytime, for anyone. If you don't believe me, go anywhere, anytime, and jump off a high building. It'll work. (laughs) You can jump off screaming, I don't believe in the law of gravity! Ah! you'll still end up in a mess because the law operates. You do it at midnight, midday, in Burma, in England, America, wherever you like, it'll work. And if you say, my name's not Smith, it doesn't make any difference. It still operates. Whether you're tall, short, fat, old or young, it operates. That's a law. Now, it's in this sense, the scientific sense, that we're here considering the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It's, it's the Spirit and it's in Christ Jesus. We're going to come onto this more fully when we get to Romans 8. It's a, glorious, it's a glorious thing, this. But what we are seeing in verse 4 is this, that by living in this life, we discover that the requirements of the law, the just requirements of the law, are fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. You might say that after 10 years of living all out for God, just drinking in the Holy Spirit, doing whatever Jesus tells you to do, uh, some Jewish rabbi may come and say, did you know that for the last 10 years you've kept the law? Oh, did I? I didn't know. I wasn't really interesting that. He said, yes, in fact, you've gone far beyond it. 
all that's in the heart and essence of the law has been kept incidentally because we're living by the Spirit in Christ Jesus. We've gone into another law which supersedes it. Do you understand that? In that way the law's dead. It's finished. It's just le- it's like a, a, a butterfly that looks back at the old chrysalis that it once used to live in and it's, it's in a whole new dimension of living. It wouldn't go back to crawling over leaves as a caterpillar if you paid it. It says, no fear. <laughs> I found a new way of living. A new dimension has been opened up to me. Alright, now the second uh, part of the law was the ceremonial law. Okay, that is the sacrificial law, the Levitical priesthood, all the, you know, if you read through Leviticus and all the blood and the, the you know, the fat and the kidneys and, you ever read through it? I think, Ugh. Well, every part of it is speaking of spiritual truth. Once you get into the once God begins to open it up to you, it becomes a very precious part of Scripture, which we won't go into tonight. But all of it is a shadow of the reality. And in that sense, again, it's been superseded. Just imagine that we were going to... This happened to me when I did two years um, full-time lecturing in Nottingham. Uh, during that time, I went to the the college, the technical college there, College of Advanced Technology, and they were going to have a fabulous new building. It was going to be all made of white marble, which it was. But it was just this dingy old building that we were in, and they told me all this interview, soon we'll have this new building, and you'll have this marvellous department, and it was all a lot of, you know, pie in the sky by and by. And in the, I remember in the entrance hall to this college, there was this architect's model of this new building. You know, in a glass case, and every time you went in, you looked at it, and you thought, cool, that's going to be my department. And you saw this model in all its detail. It was an exact replica of the reality which is yet to come. Gave you a real understanding of what the reality was going to be. But the day finally came when they started to build this building and the day came when it was opened. And I remember moving into this new department and all this white marble and I don't know what else was a reality. It must have cost a bomb. It was a f- <laughs> it's more like a sort of a great temple in the middle of Nottingham. You can still see it today. It must have cost the taxpayer millions. <laughs> But once that building was erected and functioning, nobody bothered about the model anymore. It had served its purpose. It had been a shadow of the reality. It was a working model to give us understanding of the reality so we could recognize it when it came. And so much of the law, the ceremonial law, had that purpose. Because God, you see, was going to do deep and wonderful things when he sent Jesus into the world and, and so many principles which, by which the church was to live and move and have its being were, were shadowed in the law. Take the whole, you know, the whole system of giving, the whole priesthood, everything speaks to us about the reality which is yet to come. So by looking at it, we can get a lot of understanding into it. And of course, you see, I mean... Because, for example, the Jews were trained for hundreds of years about the Passover lamb and what he was for and the scapegoat and all these things, when finally Jesus came, John the Baptist could say to a Jewish crowd, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody knew what he was talking about. But no other nation would say, Well, what's what's he talking about? If he'd gone to Greece and said that, they would have said, "What, What do you mean? But to the Jews, they knew exactly what he meant. And so you see, there's great benefit in being a Jew 
which is what it says in the beginning. So what's the advantage of being a Jew? Number one, you've got the word of God. Number two, you've got some knowledge of the true living God. Knowledge of the true God. Number three, you've been kept from the worst excesses of sin. You've been kept by God, held together, waiting for the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now Christ come, I'm going to take you on to a new plane, a whole new dimension. You're going to leave the law only in the sense that you're now going beyond it. Amen. All right, how does the law affect the Christian? I'm going to answer that in three minutes, I'll try. First of all, you're freed from the law in the ceremonial sense, in the sense of which I've just described. You're freed from the law because you've gone on to a higher law, but there's a condition. What's the condition? When you're married to Christ. That is, you've got a new husband. And you obey your new husband in everything. Then, the old husband's dead. That's the argument of Romans 7. We'll look at it more fully later. If you love Jesus and want to please him, then you're under a new law. The law of whatever your husband says. You do it. And the God of peace will be with you. Secondly, we have a new law that's written in our mind and in our heart. That's Hebrews 8, verses 8 to 12. Hebrews 12, verses 8 to 12. Can we just read that? Are you, are you, are you holding out? It's a bit long, isn't it? Verse 8. For finding fault with them, that is the first covenant and the first promises, for finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. And I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I'll remember them no more. So what's happening now is God's going to give you a personal law. It's like, instead of going to one of these massive comprehensive factories called an education system, where you just process children like, and the trouble is they don't behave like sort of pieces of plastic, and you just stamp into them chemistry, physics, bomb, bomb, out you go, and so on. You can't do that. Instead of that, and you see, this is one of the weaknesses of the law. Because it was inflexible, it was impersonal, it was cold and legal and written on stone, it didn't suit everybody. And there were occasions when the law, because it was applied without mercy or understanding, it actually wasn't even good or loving. And Jesus, you see, when on the day that he was walking through the fields, he picked a, you know, corn and ate it, and he said, and he was breaking the law the cold legal system because the legal system couldn't bend enough to allow for reasonable conduct which wasn't really against God and God's purposes. Do you understand? But what God has now done, he's given you a law for you, written on your mind and in your heart, which is the personal tutorial of the Holy Spirit. So all the classes are just one to one. And he says to you, right, he says, uh, he might say, get your hair cut, you see, he may say that. But that doesn't mean everybody's got to do it. 
But it might be God's law for you. Or he might say, uh, you know, your dress is a bit um, provocative, tone it down. Now that's between you and God. And she says, you will all know the Lord. It isn't sort of that someone says to someone says to someone says to someone and then everybody does it kind of thing, but there is this personal walking with God. And if you are willing to walk with God with an open heart and with an obedient spirit, then he will take you personally on to perfection. And he will write, you see, that we're still under government. But you're not under the Jewish law. He will write his laws in your mind and on your heart. I knew a man who was in the church at Nottingham when I was first converted and God said to this man, he said, you just come here to enjoy playing the organ, which he did. He said, right, he said, you mustn't play the organ anymore. Now, he didn't want to start a church where we don't play the organ. <laughs> and a, that was a personal thing for him. God said, for three years, you come to worship me. Not to just, you know, fulfill your musical gift in letting yourself go on this fantastic... It was a great organ. He used to play it, you know. You could see his head wagging and, he, you know, he put it... And, and God said, that's no, no good. No organ for you. Now, that was a law for him. For three years, he never touched it. And then God said, right. He said, I think, you know, the, <laughs> the sort of addiction's gone out of your system. He said, right, you can go back and play it. But remember, I'm here and the organ's there. And if ever you reverse the order again, you'll get another sentence. <laughs> and so the man now plays the organ, but under this restriction from God. Now that's something for him, personally. You can't say that's a law for everybody. But that's what he needed at that time. And you see how much more beautiful it is. So God can come. Of course there are principles that apply to us all. But there's a way in which God can just take. And if you would say, oh God, whatever you say, I'll do it. I want to come into your, your glorious school. Then he'll write his law on your heart and your mind. Whatever you need right now, he'll give it to you. It's not, it's not gay widowhood, you see. Oh, I'm finished with the law. Now I can do as I like. The old man's dead, hallelujah. <laughs> no, it's not that. You're married to Christ. You're under a new governor. But his whole purpose for you is loving desire to bring you into perfection in Christ. He'll write his law in your heart and on your mind and furthermore, he'll give you the abundance of grace to do it. Okay, we're getting on to that later. About this wonderful word grace. Hallelujah. Well, I better stop, I think. Yeah, there's nothing else we need to say particularly, except we're not under law, we're under grace. We'll deal with that later. It's a tremendous statement. Let's give thanks to God. Now, before we break up and move, I want you just to answer some questions before the Lord as best you know how. I want to ask you, have you been a Christian living under law?
We'll read it right through. Remember where we were last, not last week, but last time I was with you. We looked at the law. We saw the law could not give um, righteousness, but it had a purpose in God, which was a fivefold purpose, if you remember. But the main purpose was to show us that we needed Christ. All right, so I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 4 then. What shall we say then? What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. <clears throat> For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favour, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. <clears throat> is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. You all understand that so far, do you? Good. For the promise to Abraham, it's ever so clear, isn't it? <laughs> for the, well, what he's saying, <coughs> anyway, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. That's a lovely phrase there. Calls, did you notice that one? Calls into being that which does not exist. Or he calls the things which are not and they are. That's tremendous, isn't it? Oh, amen. I could, well, carry on. In hope against hope or he believed 
in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of graces. Let's go over it again till it gets deep into our heart because there's a lot of evangelicals who've got the idea that grace has only to do with not going to hell when we should go to hell. By the grace of God, I'm going to heaven. But the grace of God is everything. It's all supplied to us without us earning it. It's his, as I've quoted it many times in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it's his divine power granting to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. And so grace is much more than simply not going to hell when I die, although I deserve to. Grace is everything I need to live victoriously, to function effectively in the body, to, to <coughs> obtain all that I need to do the work of God. Everything is under this heading grace. Paul says, when I bring every man to perfection in Christ, I do it by the grace which God supplies. He says, as an apostle, I labour my, more mightily than them all, and I do it. He says, it's not me, it's the grace that God supplies. Then he says, uh, my life is a continual pageant of triumph. And then he says, I don't frustrate the grace of God. See, everything that Paul was and did and moved in and supplied to others was this tremendous thing, grace. And I want you to imagine it's sort of like a, a mighty water supply. You know, some great big tank of water and uh, there's a standpipe and there's a connecting point and you get a big hose and you want to connect it up to that infinite supply of water. It's a, it's, let's imagine it's a great lake. And there's this standpipe coming out from the lake and there's a connecting point. You connect the hose up and then you can supply water in gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons. Okay? But before the water can flow, the connection's got to be made. Now, the flow is like the flow of grace, but the connection is connected by righteousness. Now, you get hold of your sort of brass end and it won't fit. And until you can make it fit, until there's a, an intimate join between the supply and the source for which the grace is going to flow, there's no flow, although the potential is enormous. Now, if we can look at righteousness as that connection, that is, it allows me to come and join myself to God because I feel right with him. If I don't feel right with God, then I hold back. I say, well, Lord, I'm not worthy. may not say it, but I feel it. I'm not worthy. When all these people start praising God and I say, Lord, you love me. You know, well, he doesn't really love me. I don't feel he loves me. And, and I feel unfit and unclean. And so I keep a little bit distance back. And, and it's like this... Connection is not made, so nothing can flow. And it's, it's by believing my righteousness that I allow myself to be joined to the living God. Jesus is basically saying the same thing in John chapter 15, when he says, except you abide in the vine, you can do nothing. He says, abide in my love, and then you can go on to produce much fruit. He says, you've got to continually abide in me. Now, how many of us here feel as worthy before God as Jesus Christ? How many? I do. Honestly, I do. 
I honestly do. I feel as worthy before God as Jesus Christ because I believe I'm righteous. That's all. I didn't earn it. I just received it. I said, thank you, Lord. And I get up again and again, morning by morning. The devil says, you're a failure. I, says, I, say, I say, you shut up. <coughs> or words to that effect. I say, I'm as worthy and as loved and as received and as acceptable <coughs> as Jesus. <coughs> and I'm going to plug in to my divine supply. His divine power grants to me everything pertaining to life and godliness. If you can just, just digress for a moment. Let's just turn to Second Peter. It's not a vital page. My Bible's beginning to fall a bit, so I'm going to have to get another one. Second Peter, in chapter 1, notice verse 1. Alright, there's three verses which are, if you like, this mighty hosepipe <laughs> which can cause you and me to live utterly triumphant and can cause you and me to think in terms of inheriting the earth. Corporately, I mean. We can believe God for our righteousness. We can believe God for anything. Okay, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to, Jesus Christ, to those who have received, King James says, I think, like precious faith with us. Is that right? This one says, who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Now what's Peter saying? He's saying this. He's saying, the life that I live, I live by the grace of God through faith. Now, grace comes through faith. Grace is like the water gushing through, but the host pipe is the host pipe of faith. Without a host pipe, you can look at this great ocean, you can see a fire and you can't do anything about it because you need some way of bringing that infinite resource to the point of need. And without that clear faith, you can't do anything except burn. He said, Jesus, that severed for me could do nothing. He's like a branch which is cast into the furnace and is burned up. And so we've got to get this absolutely clear. Now Peter bless him, has been portrayed by the Holy Spirit in the Gospels as a very, very human person, hasn't he? Can't you identify with him? And yet, this man has had an encounter with Christ subsequent to being taught for three and a half years. The teaching didn't do it. Please notice that. He sat there and he was taught by Jesus himself for three and a half years. Who could have a better teacher? But after the teaching, and I'm sure it was all stored there, waiting to be kindled and brought to life by the Holy Spirit. Calvary did its work and cleansed him. He felt the power, if you like, or, or entered into the power and the good of, of the blood of Christ and then the Spirit came and filled him. And then he could draw and he could start to live like Jesus. On the earth, Peter could. And at the end of his life, and he's writing this second letter, as he's about to give his life for the gospel, he's about to go and be um, 
executed and tradition says that he was crucified like his Lord. And as he's facing this and says further down, I must soon put off this earthly tabernacle, he talks about a man, you know, as if he was changing his shirt. He's not worried about dying, couldn't care less about it. He said, I'm going to put off this earthly tabernacle. His concern is for those he's going to leave behind. He says, now you've got the same faith that I've got. There's no difference in the faith that you've received and that I've received. And I found it could do this for me, so you can find it can do this for you. I didn't have apostolic faith. <laughs> Some special endowment of faith which only apostles get. I had faith the same as yours. That's what he's saying, isn't it? Every one of us here has got, if we're a believer, we've got like precious faith with Peter. So everything that Peter entered into, we can enter into. As far as our lives are concerned, not, it's not ministry, our ministry will vary, our, our function will vary, but the quality of our life will be the same. Agreed? Good. Right. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. In the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So there's the light precious faith, which opens the way for grace and peace to be multiplied. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And then we come to verse 3, which is, if you like, is the, is the, I like to call it the definition of what grace is all about. It's his divine power granting to us, and that's a gift word, grant is a gift word, there's no earning about it, it's just simply freely and undeservedly given to those who take it. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Hallelujah. For by these, what? By grace and peace being multiplied to us through faith, you would agree? For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might be utterly frustrated and go to meeting after meeting and still not get into the good of any of it, just like I did. I'm glad I'm dying soon because I'm fed up with this Christian life. Is that what he said? No, he doesn't say that. He says, for by these he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them, by the promises, you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Now the, the setting is this world. You would agree with that? So here we have the process by which Peter lived and ministered. Post-Calvary, post-Pentecost. He says, now it's all available to you. Now that's the burden of his heart as he's about to go with the Lord. He says, now friends, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Get into it. If God could do it for me, he could do it for anybody. He doesn't quite say that, but he almost does. Now this is what Romans 4 is all about. It takes Abraham as one of the great men of works and says, well, even Abraham couldn't be justified by his works. Let's go back to Romans 4, shall we? I think we're beginning to get a hold now of what it's all about. Verses 10 to 16 are particularly dealing with the fact that whether, as he was writing to a mixed church of those, who, some of whom were Jewish and had been circumcised and had 
sought to keep the law and found it didn't work. And then there were those who were not Jews who had tried to obey their conscience and disobeyed it and they were condemned. They found it didn't work. They were all ending up in the same place of knowing that they were not right with God. And now God has offered them a new way. The way of righteousness which is by faith. And that's got to come first. That's like the connecting link that joins you to the supplier. <clears throat> when you can believe that you are as right in God's sight as Jesus. And then you can come like Jesus and just live in the Father. Hallelujah. Okay. Verse 15, <clears throat> it says, well let's read 14 and 15. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. Did you hear that? The law brings about wrath. You say, right, that's it. I'm going to get up early every morning and have a quiet time. That's a typical law, you see. It don't, we don't have to have a Jewish law. We can have a Christian law or I ought to law. Or somebody said it was good to law. Now always remember that it only took one commandment to slay Adam and Eve. They were getting on fine until one commandment came and said, don't touch that particular tree. That was all that you needed. And then the devil had got something to work on. He said, ah, oh, there's a commandment now. There's something that they've been told not to do. All I've got to do is to get them to do it. And I've got them. <coughs> See? I've got them. Now... That's the way the devil works today. He says, ah, oh, so you can have a quiet time every morning, are you? Oh, good. Right. I'm glad to hear that. All I've got to do is to get you to miss it one morning and you're on the slippery road down into condemnation. Now, don't misunderstand. Quiet times are good. The law was good and holy. But it brought death to those who tried to keep it. Quiet times are tremendous. They're an essential foundation to your Christian life. But if... If you judge your acceptance before God on whether you do it, then you're in danger. Do you understand? I'm not giving you liberty to do anything. But you're not justified by the law. You're righteous through believing. I'm just going to say bus. It's a lovely word. What will I say in English? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it's just, that's it. There's nothing else to say. You believe that you're righteous, that's it. Hallelujah. Now do you? Alright, well when you miss your quiet time, say, well I mustn't keep on that, but it doesn't affect my relationship with God. Now, because we find grace flowing into our lives, we don't go off into debauchery. Paul comes to deal with this later at the end of Romans 5, beginning of Romans 6. We'll deal with that when we come to it. Because that's the immediate reply. Oh, but if you let people say, well, do as you like, it doesn't matter, then they're going to go off into all sorts of things. Because they say, well, we're free. And there are people who've misused and abused the gospel in that way. In fact, there was a heresy in the early church which was called the heresy of antinomianism, which meant anti-law, against law. They said, oh, we're not under law, we can do as we like. God's grace is so fantastic that the more we sin, the more we give God opportunity to forgive us, so let's sin, because that makes God's happy. And they actually perverted the gospel into that terrible, terrible deception. 
But I'm sure that the people to whom I'm speaking tonight and the people to whom Paul was writing are people who basically desire holiness. They want to be like Jesus. Don't you? Of course you do. Right then, for you, there's no law. Hallelujah. And if there's no law, which it says in my Bible, then there can't be a violation of it. Simple, isn't it? It's like as if you went out of this church tonight and you found that all the yellow lines had disappeared. <laughs> they suddenly cancelled all the parking restrictions. You could, you, wouldn't it be marvellous? <laughs> but if you were a good motorist, you'd still be considered where you put the car, wouldn't you? Now that's what God's done in Christ, alright? Because you want Jesus, you want his holiness, you want to do that which pleases God you're free from law because you're married to Christ and so you can't violate what is not glory be to God be to God and you've got to believe that and then you can come without fear or without condemnation or without a shadow and you can just be joined to Christ you said Lord Lord I've just where God renews the covenant and verse 16 or verse 15 of Genesis 17 God says to Abraham as for Sarai your wife you shall not came, call her name Sarai but Sarah she shall be called which is princess and I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her now it's become very specific I lost my place. I'll give you a son by her, then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham thought, praise the Lord, I believe that. No. <laughs> he fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a man be born, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old and will Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? This is ridiculous. And I can just imagine the ha 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 It is absolutely crazy. Because it tells us in another place that by this point, Abraham had become impotent. God said, right, that'll settle you. <laughs> He'd come completely unable to, to help Sarah to conceive. That's the amazing thing. He was impotent, she was barren, full of faith, eh? <laughs> he was a hundred, she was ninety, and God says, right, now, now you've really come to the place where you can't do a thing. Now, all you can do is to believe me. See, that's what he was waiting for. You see, we have to come to the place where we lose all confidence in our ability to do anything. You see, grace comes to two kinds, of, or people who have two qualities about them. It says in the Bible, God gives grace to the humble. And it is by, it is by grace through faith that you're saved. So we've got to be people of humility, we've got to be people of faith. Otherwise, although all the grace is there, we can't be the beneficiaries of it. Now what's humility? Well, it's 
having an honest self-opinion, which is, you're utterly useless and hopeless. Do you all agree with that? Paul came to this and he was a great bloke. He'd sat under Gamaliel. He, he knew Hebrew backwards, never mind frontwards. He studied the Bible. He'd got all his theology straight. He was, boy, was he a, was he a boy, you know, bloke. And he says, I've come to one conclusion in Romans 7.14. He said, I've become persuaded that in my flesh there dwells nothing good. Now he became persuaded. He didn't just learn it in Bible school because we can learn it in our teaching but we are still not persuaded of the truth of it and we still try to produce our Ishmael's. When we face difficulties or impossibilities we're always trying to work out how we can manage with natural means to give God a helping hand. The real issue of faith, God shut us up and will shut us up to faith. And so we come to the place where we are humble. We say, Lord, there's nothing that I can do. Now that's what I believe is the heart of, of humility. It's recognising your utter nothingness. But, at the same time, we can, like Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, we can be quite sure of God's ability in us. So we don't sit there like a pudding doing nothing and say, oh, I can't do anything. I can't, but I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now that's the normal, normal relationship. I can do nothing, but Christ can do anything in me and through me. And so we become a sufficient minister of the new covenant, as Paul puts it having an ability which is from God and not of ourselves. Now to such people, God can pour his grace out. But this is the situation we've got here. Now where does faith come from? If we must have faith in order to receive grace, in order to be able to be and to do all that God wants us to be and do, what about faith? So I, say, I haven't got any faith. Well, beloved, I've got some good news for you. Even the faith comes from God. Oh, isn't that a relief? <laughs> yeah. But I want to add this. We are responsible for unbelief. Now, unbelief is different to not having faith. Can you hear me? There's a sort of neutral place in the middle where you can be neither believing nor unbelieving. You're just... Neither. But what we're talking about here, what the Bible calls unbelief, is an active opposition to receiving what God wants you to receive. You see this in the children of Israel when God said, go up and possess the promised land. They said, we can't. He said, you can. They said, we can't. We don't believe we can. We refuse to believe it. We're not going to be persuaded. Now that was their attitude, which in Hebrews 3 is called an evil heart of unbelief. 
It wasn't that they were passive. They weren't like the the father of the demoniac boy who said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. There's a man struggling with his inability to believe, but here is a people who were not going to believe, who refused to be persuaded. And that's exactly what the Greek word means in Hebrews 3, verse 18, when it says they wouldn't obey, or, or some Bible says they would not believe. And, and there's, there's a willfulness about it. It's a, there's, a, there's two Greek words for faith, and this one means a refusal to be persuaded. Or two Greek words for unbelief. Okay? Now, Abraham, as we've just seen, was not naturally a mighty man of faith. And if you go on to Genesis 18, you find Sarah, in verse 12, rolling around in stitches when she gets the message that she's going to have a son. <laughs> and then, when the angels, or, or I would think more likely, the, the Lord himself, says, why is Abraham laughing? She says, oh, I didn't laugh. You know, she was a bit scared. But actually, that was her attitude. So, we do not see in either Abraham or Sarah great natural faith. We find them actually just like you and me. Here was an utter impossibility being presented to them and they reacted in a perfectly normal human way. But they did not react in unbelief. They did not say, this is ridiculous, this is impossible, I will not receive this, this is nonsense, and and set their hearts in evil unbelief, you see, because that's something that we can do. And we're responsible for that. God doesn't ask us to produce faith, but he does require us not to manufacture unbelief. Do you see the difference? However ridiculous it is, however impossible it is, however much time delay there is, don't set your heart in unbelief. God could do the rest. You just give to God your nothing. And say, now Lord, you know and I know there's no real faith here. I'd love to believe this, but I, I just can't. But Lord, I'm willing to be persuaded. Amen? Now that's the other Greek word, pethios, or pethio. It means to be persuaded. It means to be, if you like, wooed into believing. And all of us can do that. And that's what happened to Abraham. That's what happened to Sarah. And that's why you and I can become people of like precious faith. That's why that's what happened to Peter. And you see how important it is never to allow unbelief to to get its terrifying, killing roots into our system. Once we get an evil heart of unbelief, we're in real trouble. Paul, I mean, the writer of the Hebrews says, he says, Take care, beloved, lest there be found in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in turning away from the living God. And that's what happens. If you start to unbelieve, If you start to willfully unbelieve, it's not long before you're turning away from the living God. And what happened to them? They died in the wilderness. That's why. Not because they couldn't believe, but because they wouldn't believe. Can you tell, can you hear the difference? They died. If they said, Lord, this is tough, we can't really see how you're going to do this, he would have been quite willing to persuade them how gently he handled 
Gideon, who had problems, didn't he? He wasn't a great mighty man of valour. Although the angels spoke it by faith, he was knocking at the knees and was, was afraid to go and do what God told him to do. But he was willing to be persuaded into being a mighty man of valour. Let's go back to Romans 4 now, and we're going to see this progression here in Romans 4. I want you to see it, because you see, none of us have got any excuse for being without faith. Because God's willing to give it to us. We've just got to be willing to receive it. Let's read from verse 17 then. This is where it begins. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. That was before anything happened. So God looks at you and he says, Ooh, you're beautiful. You're just like Jesus. You say, what, me? Yeah, he says, I, I can see it. That's what he said to Gideon. You're a mighty man of valor, he said to Gideon. There wasn't a sign of it. He was terrified at the time. <laughs> Amen. I love this God, don't you? He can look and he can see. What, it's like a, a, like a sculptor looking at a, at a block of marble, which is all rough, just out the quarry. And already, already he can see... <laughs> Already he can see the beautiful statue that he's already carved in his mind before it's even started. I don't know what you're laughing at. Okay. Pardon? Oh. Okay. Listen. In the sight of him who believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Now, let's get this absolutely clear. Our God is a creator. He's not a repair mechanic. Alright? He doesn't take broken down things and patch them up. You don't come to God and say, Lord, I've got a bit of faith, but I really need a bit more. That's what the disciples says, Lord, increase our faith. He said, if you had the faith of a grain of mustard seed, he said, you could say this mountain, be cast into the sea and it would obey you. He said, you don't need a bit more faith, you need some faith. That's what he said to them. That's what he said. Lord, increase our faith. Lord, I want to be a bit more holy. He says, you mean you want to receive holiness? You haven't got any. He looks in you and he says, nothing. Nothing. But it doesn't bother him. <laughs> That's the great thing about our God. When he, when, if, if he did, I don't know whether he did, when he gazed into the, the space of our universe as if it existed or whether it didn't, there was just nothing, and he said, let there be, and there was. Hallelujah. He just spoke, and it sprang into existence. Now, that's our God. So he looks at you, and he says, well, you need holiness, let there be holiness. Boom. Let there be this, and that, and the other. And he speaks into you a total new creation, which has come out of nothing. Don't just say, oh, because of my background, because of my inheritance, I haven't got this and I didn't have that and this was got damaged. It doesn't matter. You died. He doesn't do a patch-up job. It's not like you've been into a motor accident and he says, well, let's do the best we can. We'll keep it alive somehow, sew that leg on and patch up that. And, uh, no, you've died. And a whole new creation is brought forth by the word of God out of nothing. Hallelujah. And that's what you've got to see. So don't waste your time trying to get the old patched up because God's already put it to death. 
He creates out of nothing. And he took Abraham, who couldn't, other than laugh at the impossibility. I'm 100, you're 90, we're going to have kids. <laughs> it was the biggest joke of the season. But he said, Lord, I don't see how this can possibly be, but I'm not going to say you can't. Now that was the only chink there was in Abraham for God to work in. All right? So we are meeting here a God who calls into being that which does not exist. He takes the things which are not, and they are. Hallelujah. Isn't that tremendous? Isn't that terrific? He's a creator God. We're a new creation. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all things have become new and all things are of God. Hallelujah. For in hope, against hope, or as some translations have it, when all hope is gone, he believed. In order that he might become a father of many nations. That is, after he could no longer even... Uh, he was impotent. After Sarah became barren, he became impotent. And all hope was gone, but he still believed. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. It says in the King James, he did not contemplate. Actually, in the Greek, it says he did. He looked square in the face, the impossibility. He looked at him as good as dead. He looked at Mary, she, uh, um, Sarah, I'm sorry, and she was as good as dead. And yet, with respect to the promise of God, he didn't waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. I like to translate that literally. It's in the passive voice. It means he was empowered with faith. That's ever so important. He received faith. It came to him from outside and he just became the beneficiary of it. That's what it's saying. He was empowered with faith. Have you got that? He said, Lord, I'm empty of faith. God said, right, here's a bucket full. Open your mouth wide. And he took it in. He said, oh, I've got faith. <laughs> Where did it come from? From God. That's what Jesus said when the, the disciples saw the cursed fig tree. Matthew 11 and 23. They said, oh, look at the fig tree you've cursed. It's withered. He said, yes. He said, answering them, you must have the faith of God. It's a genitive case. It's God's faith you must have. God's faith. Unfortunately, these translations are a bit blurred in some of that, but that's what it says. You've got to have God's faith. And then we're told it's a fruit of the Spirit, it's a gift of the Spirit, so God gives us. He knows we haven't got faith. But someone who's open and, and willing to receive, who has not set their heart in unbelief, God can begin to put faith into us. And we find ourselves being persuaded. We find ourselves beginning to actually believe this impossible thing. Actually, you know, I'm beginning to believe this. Have you ever said that yet? As you find yourself being moved by God to get hold of something which you couldn't get hold of before. And so as the process went on, and he was very sensible in verse 20 to give glory to God, he said, Lord, I'm beginning to believe this and this is your work. And then verse 21, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was also able to perform therefore it was reckoned to him as righteousness that's the process he said Lord I can't believe this it's impossible but I'm going to just open my heart to you to persuade me 
I'm going to let you work a mystery in my heart so that I shall come out of this process being as sure about this as you are. That what God has said, he's also well able to perform. And you find you've got faith. Give glory to God. Cool, I can believe God. I know God. to the book of Romans you think oh that sounds heavy after all that but the book of Romans is a glorious liberating book and when its teaching becomes truth and life in you then well hallelujah so we're going to turn to the end of Romans chapter 4 you remember that we've been doing a sort of series through Romans on and off from time to time as it were and if you've forgotten where we are then so did I but uh, I now recall today that we'd got to the end of Romans 4 and the last great truth that I trust is still thrilling your heart was this wonderful truth which Abraham uh, is the scriptural type that is we are justified by faith. We're declared righteous by believing God. And we saw that through the various chapters we've looked at, that whether we're Gentile or Jew, whoever we are, we're all shut up to need Jesus Christ to save us because no works or merit of our own can save us. And so the whole of the world is shut up in sin and in, under condemnation because it's not perfect, it has come short of the glory of God, but God's glorious answer is faith in what Jesus has done, and just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, so we can believe God, and we also can find ourselves just as righteous as Jesus Christ in the sight of God. And if that isn't worth dancing about, I don't know what is. Isn't that worth dancing about? Can we do it all over again? No, better not. <laughs> well, let's go to the end of chapter 4, and you'll find that the story concerning Abraham was written for us. Verse 23. 
Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The great proof that you and I have been justified through faith in Christ is the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. Alright? If he wasn't risen from the dead, then you have reason to doubt your rightness before God. Do you believe Jesus is alive? Alright then. You're as righteous as Jesus in the sight of God and his resurrection proves it as we shall go on to show during this evening's message. The other thing I want to draw your attention to is that now we're introducing a great new theme which goes on for several chapters and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now if you go to the book of Acts which we will not do you will find again and again the disciples going out to bear witness with great power to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It comes again and again. You'll find it all over the place. One place is at the end of chapter 4. It says, And with great power the apostles bore witness to the resurrection, and great grace was upon them all, and there wasn't a needy person among them. Hallelujah. Now that's three truths all put together in three short sentences. And that, I believe, is to be the main thrust of what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to read right through chapter 5, and then through the verse, first 11 verses of chapter 6. And so just sit back and relax if you want to listen to the Word of God, or if you want to follow it with your own Bible, of course, that's fine. Underline anything that really strikes you, and let it become something you can chew on afterwards. So let's begin chapter 5, verse 1 then. We're looking at this we're moving on from chapter 4, that now we are to believe in Jesus who was raised from the dead. And he was raised for our justification. Verse 1 then, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. I must stop there and pick out a few truths. What tense is our justification? Past, present or future? Past tense. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? So justification is a past thing. It has happened the moment you believe. It happened 2,000 years ago, but God's been waiting for you to catch up and believe it. So if you haven't caught up with it, catch up tonight. Alright? Now, that isn't the end of the story, wonderful as it is. It's great to sing and shout, I've been forgiven, I've been forgiven, and that would be enough to keep us thrilled for the rest of our life. But as far as God is concerned, that's just chapter 1. It's just the beginning of the riches of the treasure which God has given us in Jesus Christ. Through whom... It says in verse 2, we, ha we have obtained our introduction. Justification by faith is a past thing, but now we're being introduced into something much more. And you'll find as we go through chapter 5, this phrase, much more, comes a number of times. Watch out for it and see what the much more is all about. 
other words, we're now being introduced by faith into a grace in which we stand. Remember what Jude said? He said unto him who is able to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. And he speaks about he's able to keep you from falling. Now this is what we're going on to now. It's not enough as a Christian to be able to sing every Sunday, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, sorry I kicked the cat and shouted at the wife and and was angry with the milkman and all that, but Lord, you've forgiven me, hallelujah. That's not Christianity. Although God will forgive you, we're missing 99% of what Jesus rose again for, if that's our Christian life, wonderful as it is. But the purpose of Jesus Christ rising from the dead was to introduce us into a grace by which we can stand. Amen. And then it goes on in the end of verse 2, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Now what's the glory of God? Well, it's to be like God. It's to be like Jesus. That's the glory which we have to come up to if we're going to be sinless in the sight of God. And that's our glorious hope. That's the glory with which we have been glorified. Remember how Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, Father, the glory which you gave me, I have given to them. Verse 22. What a tremendous statement that is, isn't it? And we read of his glory in John 1 when it says, We beheld his glory. What was his glory? It was full of grace and truth. We, he was the, we read the outshining of God. And that's the, the, the treasure that's been opened up to us. Not just to be forgiven, although that's enough to get really excited about, but to have a way opened up for us. To have an introduction to a process which will bring us to the very fullness of the glory of God resting upon each and every one of us. Now that's an ambition worth really seeking with all your heart, isn't it? Isn't it? If you thought in earthly terms, that by a bit of training you could become a world athlete and get umpteen gold medals, you'd give yourself to it. Anybody would. It's the way the world thinks. And Jesus said the children of this generation are wiser in their generation than the children of light. They've got more sense. When they see something worth having, they go after it with all their might. And if we've had our spiritual eyes open to see what God has given us in Christ, we go after it with all our might. The glory of God. And Paul says we rejoice or we exult. It's a tremendously strong word. We exult in the hope of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Okay. Now Paul says in the Philippian letter in chapter 3, he chapter 3, but God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now can you see what he's saying here? You see there's a, a justification through the blood, 
there's a reconciliation through the death of Jesus Christ so that God and I can come together in perfect oneness. God can just receive me and can put away all my sin, all my past, all that's been so wrong about me and he can just receive me as he can receive Jesus. I'm as accepted, as loved, as received as Jesus. Now that's what the blood does, that's what the death of Christ does, but that's not where God stops. He says, now much more, here's the, here's the next bit. Much more, we shall be saved by his life. You see, when God talks about salvation, which he does an enormous amount in the New Testament, this salvation is couched in the terms of being saved to the uttermost. That's how it comes in Hebrews chapter 7. He's able to save to the uttermost those that come unto God through him. And it's that uttermost salvation that I really want to talk about tonight. It's going right the way through until God has touched every part of our life and we feel the power of his resurrection in our life. What are we saved by? We're saved by his life. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? Well, one of the reasons he rose from the dead was that he might bring us in perfection to God. All right? And then in verse 12... Uh, well, let's read verse 11. Not only this, but we also exalt in God. You see, I told you that Romans was a hallelujah book. Three times we've got to exalt now. We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Have you? Have you? Can you sit there and say, Lord, I really believe that I am as loved, accepted, received, I'm as clean as Jesus by the power of your blood. I can stand in your presence without fear, without condemnation, without any of these things sort of lurking and thinking, oh, I wish I was a bit better. We now have received, it says, the reconciliation. Have you? Well, if not, that's where you must come tonight. You must come to God and be reconciled. You must come and stop. You may be someone who's been trying to be religious, doing religious things. Maybe you've changed your way of life a bit. You put away some of the sins. thought, well, I hope God will now receive me. But that's not the point at all. It's not by what you were or what you've tried to make yourself, but it's, why, it's by what Jesus did 2,000 years ago that you're reconciled. It's by his blood. When he shed his blood, God provided a way for you to be perfectly reconciled. And the only way for you to come into this relationship is to believe. Say, Lord, I believe that sacrifice, that bloodshed has brought me into perfect relationship with you, that I'm as received and as loved and as accepted. I'm as much your son. Whether I'm male or female, I'm as much your son as Jesus Christ the Son of God. Because that's what the Bible tells us so clearly if we read through the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and 4, for example. Now, have you got it? See, a lot of Christians are still trying to work out their salvation, still trying to be accepted, and God says, no, that's where we start. That's the very beginning. That's, you know, verse 1 of chapter 1. You have now been reconciled. All, all the negative things are gone, the, the debt's paid, you're, there's not, a, not a, a, a fraction of an inch between you and God. You're utterly one. You're reconciled. 
Another word that is sometimes translated is the atonement or the at-one-ment. It's two being made one. You know what reconciliation is, don't you? Have you been reconciled? Well, you can be tonight. Because of what Jesus did. And say, cool. And I was all the time trying to make myself a bit better, hoping that one day God would love me as much as Alan. <laughs> well, I'll tell you why God loves Alan. Because he decided to. That's, that's why. That's all. He just said, I'm going to love Alan. And the angel said, what, him? He said, yes. <laughs> and he sent his love upon me, and I said, oh, Lord, this is terrific. And I've walked in it ever since. And I know God loves Alan Nixon. I know it. I have now received the at one moment. Have you? Hello, isn't it glorious? Now that's where we start now because it's right. Now we've got ourselves united as one. Now let's work together to bring you to glory. That's what my resurrection is all about. It's to bring you in practice to live gloriously for me. Amen. Now, in the next few verses of chapter 5, we have the, the tragic story of how it all happened. Verse 12, now, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because of all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin <coughs> is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of Adam's offence, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Do you understand that? Alright, I'll stop there. What we're going into now is what I like to call the law of heredity. Let me explain it. I know some of you have heard me explain it, but I want us all to understand it. It's a, it's a very important principle to get hold of. And the best illustration in the Bible that I know of is found in Hebrews chapter 7. So let's just turn to that for a moment to get hold of this principle which is so important. Because until we've got this, we cannot enter into the glorious truths of Romans 6. We've got to get hold of this and understand it. Now in Hebrews chapter 7, we are again being introduced to this wonderful high priest of the new order, that is Melchizedek. And the purpose of the writer here is to prove that the priesthood according to Melchizedek is greater than the priesthood according to Levi. Those of you who know a bit of the Bible, you know that there was a priesthood which, which uh, acted as an, as an intermediary between man and God and it was a priesthood of all the descendants of the, of the tribe of Levi. Okay? And that to the Jews was the best tribe to be in because you were God's representative to man and man's representative to God. Now, what the writer's doing is showing the the readers, that a, a superior priesthood has now come. And it's the priesthood which we are told several times is after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this is the argument. Let's read it from verse 6. It speaks of this mysterious Melchizedek who's obviously a, a, a type of Christ. 
the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater, and in this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. Right, here's the argument so far. All right, stay with me. This is really worth getting hold of. It'll transform your life when you get hold of it. All right? Now, here is Melchizedek. And Abraham comes to Melchizedek. And two things happen. Number one, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. That makes Melchizedek superior to Abraham. All right? That's proof number one. Second thing that happens is that Abraham offers tithes to Melchizedek. That's proof number two that Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek. The one who blesses is greater and the one who receives tithes is greater. Therefore, by two proofs, Melchizedek is greater than Levi. That's the case proved as far as the writer is concerned. But then he goes on to another point, which is a very important point. Verse 9. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now this is the argument. Now Levi is the great-grandson of Abraham. He, do he doesn't yet exist. He's the son of the son of the son of Abraham. He's the great-grandson. Probably several hundred years, certainly a couple of hundred years, exist between the two. He doesn't exist, he's not in physical form at all, but according to this principle of heredity, Levi is already there, potentially, in the loins of Abraham. Not yet existing, but potentially there. Alright? You with me so far? So when Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek, Levi also was doing it. He was involved with him in the act, although he didn't yet exist. Have you got that? Now that's Bible logic. If you're having problems, then don't think rationally according to human terms. Start to think rationally according to Bible terms. That's why you've got to have your mind renewed. You don't stop thinking, you just start thinking a different way. You submit your mind to the principles of God. All right? And then it's easy. God says it's obvious, isn't it? And you say, oh, yeah. <laughs> you remember how the disciples said to Jesus, he said, do you remember when I fed the 12,000? He said, how many baskets left? And they said, 12. When I fed the 4,000, how many baskets? They said, seven. He says, don't you yet understand? And, they, and I thought, Lord, neither do I. Have you ever, have you ever felt like that? <laughs> And I said, Lord, but I want to understand. And so I, I pondered and I thought and I, I waited on God. I knew it wasn't any good going to theological cemetery. <laughs> I've got to get it from God. And I waited on God. I said, Lord, please explain these things to me. And I had to just sit there in humility and wait for God to unfold these things. I used my mind. But it's submitted to God. Right, let's, let's come back to this then. So here we have this picture. Melchizedek is the priest over this new covenant which we've come into in Jesus Christ. And he receives tithes from Abraham. He blesses Abraham. And in the loins of Abraham, not yet born, not yet existing, is a great-grandson. And as Abraham puts himself under Melchizedek, the Bible argument is that Levi is doing the same thing. 
Therefore, the argument is, Levi must be inferior to Melchizedek. He wasn't even there. But he was involved in the act. Now, this is the principle which comes in a number of places in Scripture, and this is the principle which we are being taught in Romans 5, except we're not here considering Abraham, we're considering Adam. Adam, the father of the human race, after the natural order, he, one day, as we all know, he disobeyed God, and he did it with full knowledge of what he was doing. We're told that Eve was deceived, but we're not told that Adam was deceived. Adam, Adam knew what he was doing. And he deliberately chose, in the full light of understanding, in, in the full power of his, of his innocence, he chose to disobey God. And he brought death. Now, that act of disobedience affected you and me. That's what the Bible teaches. I wasn't existing. I, I was thousands and thousands of years not yet existing. But in Bible terms, I was in the loins of Adam when he did that act. So were you. As part of Adam's race, you were in the loins of Adam when he sinned and therefore you were involved with him in the act. When he chose to disobey God, you shared with him in the consequences of that disobedience. Now that's what the Bible teaches. And we either receive it and get into all the glory of God's so great salvation, or we refuse it and we go on struggling it and struggling for the rest of our lives. It's so important, beloved, to see it, to understand it, and to grasp that this is the way things work. And if you accept the principle, you start to see how in life there's so much evidence to support that it's a true principle. What God teaches us is that there is a passing down from generation to generation of the hereditary uh, strain of sin. Sin, we're told, in verse 12, passed upon all men because one man sinned. One man sinned, he disobeyed God, he infected himself with the disease of sin and it was like a, like a, a sort of invisible uh, bacteria, although it's got no physical form, don't misunderstand me, but it was like a, a thing that got into his bloodstream and it passed on and on and on to everyone who was born of Adam's race. And the result was that instead of the character of God, we developed at least some of the traits of the character of Satan. He was able to inject into the human race, by that disobedient act, the nature of Satan. That's why when Jesus was preaching to a group of religious Jews who were told in John 8 verse 30, believed in him, he said to them that if they were to continue in his word, that they would be free from sin. And then when they weren't too pleased with this sort of ministry, he said, well, he said, the trouble is you're like your father. The devil. I mean, how would you like it if I preached like that? <laughs> he said, you're like your father, the devil. He said, he was a liar from the beginning and he's the father of lies. What you are showing in your animosity towards me is that inheritance from your father, the devil. Now, the Bible only knows of two kinds of children and that is children of God and children of the devil. You're either one or the other. And you've got to decide which you are. And the way the Bible says we can tell is the way we conduct our lives. If we practice righteousness, we're of God. If we practice sin, we're of the devil. It's ever so easy, to, but the Bible says, to tell. 
It says in 1 John 3 and verse 10, the children of the devil are obvious and the children of God are obvious. How? By the way they live. If you lie and if you are immoral or unclean or impure, all the things that Satan is, then you're his child. A further thing the Bible tells us is that everyone, when they're born naturally, are born children of the devil. I was born a child of the devil and so were you. Everybody is naturally. <coughs> And what has to happen in our lives at some point or other is that we have to be born a second time. We've got to have a new birth, which is from above. And you can easily tell, I mean, you may say, well, I came from very fine Christian parents. Well, that just makes you Christian children of the devil. <laughs> if you were born a Muslim, then you're a Muslim child of the devil. If you were born a Hindu, you're a Hindu child of the devil. It doesn't make any difference. Satan's child you are until this miracle which the Bible call, calls new birth takes place in your life. And there comes a day when God takes, as we read in 1 Peter, he takes the sperm of his son. That's the word that's used. It's the, called the incorruptible seed. And it's the same Greek word as is used for the human sperm. And he takes that that glorious new life principle, the sperm of his son, and he plants it into your spiritual womb, whether you're man or woman, it's all the same. And a whole new generation begins. It's called the generation of Jesus Christ, and it's an incorruptible seed. You can't mess about with God's chromosomes, you can't fiddle around with God's pattern man. It will be, to the end, his glorious pattern, from beginning to fullness, hallelujah. Isn't that glorious? Nothing can happen to change God's relentless purpose in our lives. Now that's, that's the new birth. And when that happens, you change from one hereditary to the other. You move from one family tree to the other family tree. And you're either of one or the other. And it's not by being religious, it's not by studying the Bible, it's not by filling your head with doctrine, although these things are good in their place. It's not by praying or trying to be good or turning over a new leaf. None of these things can produce this wonderful change in your heart. There's only one who can do it and that's God. It's not by inheritance or by wanting to be different or by trying to be good. It's by God's miraculous planting of the seed of his son in your heart. And when it's happened, it's happened. And you know, and you find a whole new life principle bursting and striving for for realisation within you and you find that, that you can't sin as you used to. There was a time when I could lose my temper, it didn't worry me. It was always their fault anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but what I find now is that if I lose my temper, I violate the new life principle within me. And I'm most uncomfortable and I can't live with it. I've got to put it right because there's a whole new creation within me crying, I don't want to be part of this. Has it happened to you? It can happen tonight. You can receive the seed of God's own Son within you. I don't mean you'll physically look like Jesus. I don't mean that at all. You'll still be you. You'll still be your personality. But shot through your personality will come the power of God's life. Hallelujah. Increasingly taking over and working and working from within. You see, we tend to start on the outside. We think, oh, I'm, I, I'm going to see the vicar tomorrow. So you put on your best behaviour. You say, careful not to swear and don't let anybody see the fags until we get out again, you see. And we think, well, a bit of outside religion and he'll be conned. 
to thinking we're religious. But God doesn't start on the outside. God starts right in the depths of our heart. And the outside may still appear to deny what God's doing inside. Don't worry about it. That'll take its course. Let God get hold of you in the depths of your being with his glorious new life and nothing will stop it. It'll work and work and work and relentlessly go on and on. And of course you can do a lot to encourage it or to repress it. But stop it you cannot. That's the glory of God. Hallelujah. And as you let it grow and grow and grow, it'll gradually fill your life until it starts to show on the outside. And then there is manifested in you the beginning of the glory of God. Hallelujah. Praise his lovely name. Now that's the principle of hereditary. Now what happened was this. Adam, the first man, if I had a blackboard, I'd draw a diagram here, put a spot at the top and say, that's the first Adam. Right? Then I'd draw rays out. And then I'd put a, a circle here and then I'd compress it a bit to make it into a biconvex lens. You know what that is? It's one of these magnifying glasses, all right? And I would say, let that magnifying glass represent the world. The sin of Adam spread out to infect the whole human race. You can go anywhere in the world and you'll find the same nature. You'll find that if you are Indian or African or American or any other nationality, you'll find the children are the same. They've inherited their parents' sin. And if you are a parent and are honest, you can see it. Their children are a, are, are a sort of an enigma, aren't they? They're lovely and yet horrible all at once. <coughs> and the horrible bits are you. <coughs> Have you ever thought, oh, isn't that a dreadful habit my child's got? And you suddenly think, ah, that's me. <laughs> it's true. It's horribly true. And you can see certain traits running clearly through certain families. They inherit certain strengths and inherit certain weaknesses. It's, it's absolutely obvious. The Bible says it's obvious. You can see it. It's not some crazy theology. It's life we're talking about here. And so this infection spread out over the whole human race to cover the whole world. And then came God's last Adam. That's one of the names that's used for Jesus Christ. He's called the last Adam. And I would put another spot at the bottom and I would bring all the sin and all the wickedness and all the awful things that man have ever done and I'd bring them to a focus in Jesus Christ. Now that's what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane when God said to him, look son, here's a cup and you've got to drink it. He said, oh father, let this cup pass from me if it be possible. It wasn't the physical suffering that he was concerned about. It was being made sin. What God was going to do was to bring the whole totality of the wickedness of all men everywhere for all time. He was going to bring it into a concentrated focus in the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Peter 1, 24 that he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 it says he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why he became sin. He said, I'm going to gather into myself the whole totality of the sin of Adam's race. And then I'm going to bear it to Calvary and pay for the lot. So anyone of Adam's race who wants their sin forgiven, I've already paid for it. Hallelujah. He's the last man, the last Adam. 
Now the second thing we're told, and both these two statements are in 1 Corinthians 15, about verse 48, but I won't look them up. The second thing we're told is that Jesus Christ was not only the last Adam, he was also the second man. We must never get these two things confused. The second man is different. And it's not to be mixed up. Don't ever call him the second Adam. He was never the second Adam. Now, if you will turn for a moment to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll just notice something. I'll read from verse 45 of 1 Corinthians 15. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. Here we have the two hereditaries. We have the two heads of two races of men. There's the race of Adam and there's the race of Jesus Christ. There's the generation of Adam, there's the generation of Jesus Christ. Adam was the head of one race and Jesus brought to a conclusion that race and then started a new one. That's the glorious thing that we've got to get hold of. Now, first of all, we bore, it says, uh, the first man is earthly, he's of the earth. And so just by trying to improve ourselves as Adam's we cannot ever make ourselves acceptable to God. That which is flesh is flesh, said Jesus, and that which is spirit is spirit, and you cannot change them. It says in this uh, verse 50 of the same chapter, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. See, it has to be a miraculous change. And so by me improving myself, I can never go to heaven. You say, how good do I have to be to go to heaven? The answer is, you cannot ever go to heaven that way. Never. The only way that you can live forever with God is you've got to have a change, a total change of nature. You've got to have a new birth, which only God can do for you. You've got to change from one race to another race, from one generation to another generation. You've got to be cut off from one hereditary and to be grafted into another, into a new one. And so your whole life stream, your whole life principle is coming from another source. Alright? Now this second man, we're told, uh, was from heaven. Verse 47, that's what Jesus said. He said, I, I, was, I came from above. He said, you must be born from above. Verse 48, as is the earthly, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. totally in love with, although some seem to get very near to it. <laughs> but, and, and we're told that there wasn't a helpmate 
suitable. There wasn't a fit companion. There was no one, it says literally, to complete the man. And then God took a bone out of the man while he was asleep, tore open his side, took out a bone, fashioned it into a woman, presented it to the man, and he said, this is it! Flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone, and this has forever been a mystery. When a man's joined to a woman, they are rehearsing this parable, and then we, it's taken up in relationship to Christ and his church in Ephesians 5, when we're told it's a great mystery, but Christ being joined to his church is to be joined to flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. Now, are you following it all now? You see, what happened to Adam and why God produced woman out of the side of man was that it was to be a parable of how that second generation was also to come into existence. And as Jesus hung upon that cross and as his side was torn open, it became the very womb of God to give birth to a new generation of man. Jesus Christ was mother and child. Do you understand that? He came forth as the first fruit of his own womb. As he gave birth to a new race of men. And that new race of men bear the image of the heavenly. As we've borne the image of the earthly, let us also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's, that's why it was so important. This is Jesus Christ who came forth out of death, out of the grave, out of hell. He went down into hell he came up out of hell and he became the first fruit of his own womb. That's why we get a lot of verses which, our, for example, our Jehovah's Witness friends don't understand because it, it seems at first reading that Jesus was a creation of God, but that's not what it's saying. It's speaking about this regeneration of Jesus Christ to be the head of this new race. He's called the first begotten from the dead, the first fruits of them that sleep. The beginning of the creation of God. The firstborn amongst many brethren. These are the phrases that are used concerning him. And so Jesus said, I'm going to give birth to a man-child. And that man-child is going to be my bride, the church. And we're going to be joined together. It's going to be bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's going to be of my very nature and substance. It's going to go, owe nothing to old Adam's race. That's cut off in the last Adam dying on the cross and in the second man coming forth from the tomb we have a whole new generation, a new heredity to which we've been joined. Hallelujah. Now when we were born of Adam it worked against us. Now when I came from Adam's race I didn't have to uh, have a, an imputed sin I had real sin didn't you? I didn't sort of have a theologist and say now because you were born of Adam you've actually got a sinful nature and uh, mind you it, you can't see it but you take it by faith brother it was terribly obvious <laughs> wasn't yours? it wasn't, wasn't just theological it, was, it wasn't imputed it was actual I actually lost my temper I had foul thoughts I did awful things there was an awful corruption within me that I hated and couldn't do anything about my inheritance from Adam was absolutely real. I found myself a prisoner to the law of hereditary through Adam. And as a result, 
the sentence of death was upon me as upon all the human race. If you don't think you have this inheritance of sin and if you don't think that you are part of Adam's fallen race, then you cannot in logic expect to die one day because one follows on from the other. Death is the result of sin. The result of and if you expect to die, by that very expectation, you are confessing yourself a sinner. You may be born of Christian parents and you may even come regularly to this church, but if you've not been born again, you're lost. You're the devil's child. And what's got to happen to you is a miracle of regeneration is going to take place. Your parents can't do it for you. We can't do it for you. We can try, but it, finally it's got to be a thing, a transaction that takes place between you and God. And then, as you come into this new generation, you will find, as we get hold of the principles of Romans 6, which we obviously won't go into tonight, <laughs> but you will find that your hereditary in Christ is just as real. Just as sin was a reality in your life through Adam, so righteousness becomes a reality in your life through Christ. Because you were in the loins of Christ. Hallelujah. When he died to sin, you were in Christ when he died to sin. That's the glorious truth we shall be getting into in Romans 6. That's how you see it all working. Just as the inheritance through Adam was terrible, so the inheritance through Christ is glorious. And that's why we find this phrase written all over the epistles in Ephesians and Colossians. We were buried together with him, raised together with him. We are, we are glorified together with him. See, everything that Christ did, I was in him when he did it. Hallelujah. You see, I now am a glorious beneficiary of this wonderful law of hereditary. I can move from one line and lineage to the other. And all that was against me in Adam is now gloriously for me in Christ. All that I lost in Adam, I've more than gained in Jesus. I was a debtor through the one, I'm now rich beyond words in the other. Hallelujah! You see how crucial this new birth is. It makes all the difference between heaven and hell. Between misery and joy and poverty and riches. You must be, said Jesus, you must be born again. You must be born again. This has got to happen. And when it's happened, you start to feel the pulsating throb of this new life. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. And that's what Romans 5 is all about. Let's just read the closing verses and then we'll stop. I'm not going to comment on them, just read them. Honest. Verse 16. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned, through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one Christ Jesus. Isn't it glorious? You see how the two things are running side by side. You can understand it now, can't you? So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification unto life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace 
abounded all the more that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't it glorious? Hallelujah. What an inheritance. What a hereditary. What a family tree to be grafted into. It's all God's glorious free gift in Jesus Christ. And just as that sin was real and as the terrible results of Adam's generation were working in my life, just as really all the glorious, positive, wonderful things that I have through Christ work in my life. And so as a result we find in Romans 6, what shall we continue in sin? God forbid. God forbid. And I want us to go out saying, Paul, what an inheritance. I'm a Jesus' line and lineage. The devil can have no more in me than he had in Jesus. Sin can no more reign over me than it reigned over Jesus. And so everything that Jesus is and has, I am and have. Because I'm in him. That's what it means to be in Christ. Hallelujah. Let's just be let's just pray for a minute. Let's be quiet before God. Let me now it we said in the beginning that this is a matter of faith. It all springs into active reality through the trigger of faith. And if you release your faith, the power of this resurrection of Jesus, which is a resurrection unto a whole new generation of men. This resurrection of Jesus will be let loose to do its mighty work in your life. It's through faith. It's by believing. It's by coming and committing yourself to God. And receiving your new birth, your new heredity through faith. Now maybe you've never been born again. There's never been a day in your life and you said, Lord, come, take me. I hand myself over to you. Maybe you never realized until tonight that you were a child of the devil. But now you can become a child of God through this new birth. 